0: So we are in the gospel of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. Uh, last week we started it off. We introduced from the very beginning, the, the very beginning of the, the ministry of Jesus in his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon the Lord Jesus and the heavens opened up and the Father's voice says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased And then immediately after that The spirit uh, led him into the wilderness to be tempted And then now here where we're at this morning in verse 14 Is where we pick up, pick up from there And today I've, I've uh, titled this message The Conclusive Gospel That is a really nice piece of artwork it is. Just admire that just for a second That's, that's awesome That's probably Mike, right? That is, that is very cool. Um, the conclusive gospel is, is what I titled this. Conclusive meaning serving to put an end to all debate and questioning. Serving to put an end to all debate and questioning. And when I read through this, when I was studying it, the main thing that I kept catching from it is that we don't have to wonder when the kingdom of God will come. We don't have to wonder who the king will be and we don't have to wonder what the kingdom of God will look like. So it's not up in the air. We don't have to wonder. There's, there aren't question marks as to uh, who our king is. What his kingdom will look like and when he's going to come. Yes, the kingdom of God will come fully and be completed and consummated in the end. Yeah, we, we do have that promise. But we'll see that it is a conclusive gospel. So if you're a note taker and you want to write down these three main things, and if you even want to repeat these, say say the king's proclamation. The king's proclamation. The king's people. And the king's power. The king's proclamation, the king's people, the king's power. These are the main three things that, that we're going we're gonna to point out in this passage today. In my thesis, and I've already said it, but I'll say it again. We don't need to wonder when the kingdom of God will come. We don't need to wonder who the king will be. And we don't need to wonder what the kingdom of God will look like. So let's take a look at the first thing, the king's proclamation. Let's read in verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel. I, I love how Jesus enters onto the scene preaching and proclaiming here. Now I'm going to point out, as I'm going to take you through this passage, what, what I'm going to do basically is I'm going to point out some important things, some key things. I'm going to ask the question, why is this good news? And then I'm going to ask the question, what do we do with it? So what's happening Why is it good news? What do we do with it? And every time we look at a chunk of scripture, I want to basically use that formula. So what's happening? Jesus is entering into Galilee. Why is Galilee significant? Well, first of all, uh, Galilee is a region. It's not a city. It's a region. It's kind of like Josephine County. So saying that Jesus entered into Galilee is a general statement. Um, it'd be like saying that, you know, I went into Josephine County to proclaim the gospel. So it's not a specific uh, time and event. It's like a general statement of what his ministry started off doing. He started in Galilee. Inside of Galilee is Nazareth, which is where Jesus is. This is Jesus' hometown. And so the first, and I think is the first year and a half, is where Jesus' ministry is in Galilee. So, really, really important to note all of that. But even more important to note, turn to, if you can, Isaiah chapter 9. Because Galilee has significance. In verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now zero in at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And if you keep on reading, you'll run into verse 6, which we know very well. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. We know that verse. But this is obviously a prophetic, messianic scripture. And in another gospel, it actually quotes this verse. So Galilee is, is, is key here. It's, it's a place that is clearly ordained by God for, for Jesus to start his ministry at. But key in on who who, who the, uh, the, the, the prophet Isaiah describes the people of Galilee? How does it describe them? It describes them as people who are walking in darkness, those who have seen a great light, those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, and those whom the light has shone upon them. So this is the context in which Jesus is coming into Galilee and preaching, so he's not just randomly going out in the streets and just telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand and to repent. There is a context behind this. These are the, Jew, the Jewish people who have been waiting for the Messiah for, I mean, they've been living in 400 years of silence and far beyond before that, they've been waiting for the Messiah. And so um, we have the context of a people who are eager who are waiting, who are hungry, who are in darkness. And now as Christ shows up on the scene, a great light is shining. So also notice in the context of the dwelling in darkness and those who are in need, this lines up perfectly with what Jesus said about his own ministry in Luke chapter four. If you want, you can jump over there, but I'm just gonna read it to you. When Jesus goes to Nazareth and he walks into a synagogue, And he opens up the book of Isaiah. Here's what he said about his, as he reads the book of Isaiah, that he describes his own ministry. He says this in verse 18, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we have more context here. Who is it that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom to? It's the poor, it's the captives, it's the blind, it's the oppressed. This is what the kingdom of God's, the the king's proclamation, sounds like. But who is the king's proclamation for? It is for the poor, it is for the captives, for the blind, and the oppressed. Why is this good news? Well, Jesus didn't just come to the Jews. It wasn't just the Savior and the King of the Jews. It's the Savior of the world. This is good news for us because we also dwell in darkness. We also experience gloom. Do we not? I mean, just stop and think about what's going on right now in so many areas of our country and our world. It is not hard to just admit and, and confess we are in need. We are in need of a great light to shine upon us. Why else is this good news? Because Jesus made a proclamation Jesus did not come to these people and say, I have a proposition for you. Um, You know, if you want to consider this might be the time, and um, if you want to repent, you know, you you could if you want, but take take it or leave, you know, take or leave this message. (laughs) He didn't come that way, did he? He He came with a proclamation. Now is the time. The kingdom of God is, is at hand. It is now. Repent and believe. It's conclusive. There's no room for debate or questioning. It is now. It is the time. I am here. There are no other options. This is good news because we can know without a shadow of a doubt that our Savior Has come. Our king has come. So, what do we do with it? Well, we we proclaim it too. We take our king and our king's example and what he's done and our king's proclamation and we carry that same proclamation. We treat it as good news. Do you suggest good news? Does good news even make sense? if it's suggested or offered as an alternative option. Now, good news doesn't even make sense if it's an alternative option. It doesn't make sense at all. So imagine, imagine someone sick in a hospital bed, and I know that's not hard to imagine right now, and I say that with, with a broken heart because I know that that's happening. Imagine if someone is laying sick in a hospital bed and doctors and nurses come into the room and they say, you know, we, we've, uh, we've, got a, we've got some options for you, but here's what we believe as, you know, the doctors and the nurses, we, we believe that you're sick and you need help, but we know that you have your beliefs too, so we're just going to leave, leave, leave you with that. That's not what doctors and nurses do, thank God. They come and they say, here's your condition, and here's what we can do for you. They, they proclaim and they, they uh, announce reality. And that is exactly what we also need to do in proclaiming the gospel. I want you guys to experiment with something. The next time that you share the gospel with somebody, I want you to try leaving out this phrase "I believe" in the front. Why? Because in our culture, we love to say "I believe" and "you believe." I just believe this, and you believe that, and and we can just you know kind of coexist. And and um, you know, this is just my opinion, and you have your opinions. That is not how Jesus came and proclaimed the gospel. So try omitting I believe. I know it's hard because you know what? Here's what we want. We want to be seen as nice and inclusive. And we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to ostracize anybody. We don't want anybody to feel left out. So we just, we, th- we tack on little phrases like, you know, we as Christians believe, which is fine. But, but listen, a proclamation of the gospel is needed. Because here's the next reason what, of, of what we do with it. We have to remember, so uh, you might be asking the question, okay, how do I present the gospel in a way that's a proclamation without, without seeming like a prideful bigot, which is you know, what we're afraid to be called? Here's how we do that. We remember who the gospel is for. Who's the gospel for? It is for the poor. It is for the oppressed. It is for those who are dwelling in darkness. So we, we don't, this is really, really important. Christianity is not a political party to choose, a side to choose. Christianity is not a club that we join. Christianity is a rescue mission. It is a rescue mission. So we don't approach the gospel as like, I've, I've now, I'm on the right side and, and you're on the other side and, and it's us and them. No, 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 no. We're on a rescue mission. So when you approach someone with a proclamation, you recognize that they are in need of a physician. And also that you first were in need of a savior. Were you not personally dwelling in deep darkness and in gloom and in need of Jesus to come and rescue you? That brings humility to the discussion. And yes, we come with sensitivity. Yes, we come with humility. And yes, we consider how we can be as wise as a a serpent and gentle as a dove. But we must proclaim like Jesus did. So that's the king's proclamation that it is mainly for the poor. Next, the king's people. Let's look at uh, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What's going on? So Jesus, I think, uh, I think there might be some more backstory here in another gospel. It says that um, right after Jesus was baptized, uh, that that, um, that John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, look, the Son, or, or the, the, the Lamb of God, and then a couple of the other disciples heard it, and that it was actually uh, Simon and Andrew. So they may have known Jesus before this moment, but regardless, what's happening is that Jesus is choosing these men. He's walking up to them and he's saying, I choose you, come follow me, and they obey and they go. So, But who does he choose? He chooses Galilean fishermen. Average dudes. These guys are just hard-working, you know, uh, average guys. So that's something to note. Another thing to note is that uh, it would have been an honor to be called by a rabbi. So the, in this culture, in Galilee and in the Jewish culture, Um, we don't really get this, but it would have been a huge honor to have a rabbi walk up to you and choose you to be a disciple. So for them, it was like, well, yeah, of course, this is the greatest honor I could ever think of. The other thing I want you to notice is that this demanded full-time devotion. When Jesus said, come follow me, they weren't like, okay, when I get off work, um, I'll, I'll meet you at the synagogue, uh. It didn't happen that way. And they also didn't say, you know, um, great. Uh, I'll start coming to the, to the synagogue regularly, maybe, um, if I feel like it. They left their, their boats and their nets and their fish and their business, and they followed him to full-time discipleship. Why is this good news? Why is this good news for us? Well, because we, too, are common people. We, too, are average. You're like, well. I'm not average, I'm special. Well, I know that's how we're all trained to think because we get, you know, participation awards and stuff. But you know what? The president doesn't know our name. You know what? In 100 years, nobody's going to remember us on this earth. These guys were no namers before this point, nobody knew who these guys were. Caesar didn't know their names. Obviously, after this point, in the kingdom of God, and in eternity, these guys' names go down in history. But in this moment, when he called them, they were, they were average guys, and so were we. This is good news for us. I, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 1, if you want to turn there real quick. This fits in to this context really well, and is, for me, this is good news. And I think it will be for you too. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Here's why. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, here here it is again, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does Jesus choose average common people? So that those who boast would boast in the Lord alone. So that we would boast in him alone. And not in ourselves. So this is who the kingdom, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the king's people look like. They are lowly and they boast in the Lord. So this is good news. Also, another reason why it's good news is that we too can consider it to be an honor and amazing to call Jesus our rabbi. Just stop and think about it for a minute. The king of kings and lord of lords, the, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is my rabbi. He's my teacher. It, how amazing is that? Uh, that, that, is, that is good news. And also I want you to notice another thing, a reason why it's good news. Look at what he says to them Let's go back to Mark. Look at what he says to them in verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. See, Jesus didn't just call them to follow and to watch and imitate. He called them to become something. And he said, I will make you become fishers of men. So he's making something out of us. He's not just asking us to be um, spectators as we, we talk about this a lot. Christianity is not for spectators. Jesus is not just calling you and me to follow and to imitate. He is working in us and he is making us into something. What is he making us into? And what is a fisher of men? It's basically exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. He just caught four fish. And he's like, I'm going to teach you how to do this. I'm I'm making disciples, and I'm going to teach you how to make disciples. So this is what the kingdom of God looks like. We don't have to wonder what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like making disciples of Jesus. So another reason why it's actually... What do we do with it? So we'll just ask the question, what do we do with this? So in the light of the fact that we're common and we're, we're average, we shouldn't try to hide our weaknesses. I think it's, it's, it's a temptation it, within religious circles or within Christianity to want to show up and, and make it look like we've got it all together. I think especially for people like me, who I'm up front a little bit more, it's a temptation for me to put on a front that I've got it together, to hide my weaknesses. So here goes, here's some weaknesses of Ryan Emmel. <laughs> I have a horrible sense of direction. I get lost all the time. I'm terrible at math. I'm pretty uneducated. I did terrible in school. I didn't pay attention. Um, there's a lot I don't know. If you get a conversation with me just about general stuff, I'd be like, oh, "I didn't know that." You know what I hear constantly? "You didn't know that." <laughs> nope. Sorry, to didn't know that. And so that's why I love my wife because I'm just like, "So, like, what, what what is what is this?" Like, constantly asking her questions, trying to prepare for the world, you know, to just so don't get eaten by wolves. Um, but consider your weaknesses as, some, as a reason and an opportunity to boast in the Lord and in, in the Lord's accomplishments in you. So um, back to that Corinthian passage. Yeah, we may be average. We may have a lot of weaknesses. We may, um, we, we may be uh, average in common. But listen to what it says that if you're in Christ... If you're, um, you know, if you're despised and if you're, uh, if you're, if you're weak, it's, this is what it says in that Corinthian passage. I'm just going to go over it with you again. It says, if you're in Christ, we have the wisdom of God. We have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That is good news. So what else do we do with this? We talk about our rabbi. We just openly and freely talk about what our Jesus, our teacher, is doing in our life. So we've got a lot of you know influential people in our life. We've got our favorite preachers, and we've got our you know uh, we've we've got people that that influence us. But above all that, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, he is our teacher. And so we should be open into sharing with people, here's what Jesus is doing with me. Here's what he's teaching me. We can just talk about him and consider it an honor to be called by our rabbi. Also, what else do we do with this? We also are full-time disciples. So we, um, we are not a one-day-a-week um, thing. Christianity is not a one-day-a-week thing. It is an every day thing every moment, every category of our life situation. Um, In order to to let Jesus make something out of us, to make us fishers of men, we have to give him preeminence over every area of our life. So uh, it's popular to think of putting Jesus first, you know, Jesus here, and then everything else follows after that. That's great. I like that. But even better is Jesus first, Jesus first, Jesus first in every category of our life. So Jesus, he he should have preeminence over our finances. Jesus needs to have preeminence over our free time, our play time, our vacation time, our private time, our private thoughts, our decision making, every single area of our life We need to be considering ourselves to be full-time disciples. Before we make a decision, stop and think. Before we uh, add something on our calendar, stop and think, what does my Lord think of this? What does my Lord want with my life right now? That is how a full-time disciple thinks. And this this is what the kingdom of God looks like in the most real way. It's where the rubber really meets the road of when the kingdom of God plays out. And finally, let's look at verses 21 and 28, 21 through 28. And we'll see the king's power dominating over evil. I've been dying to get to this part. I love this part of the story. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were all amazed so that they question among themselves, saying, "What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Oh, she just love this story. This, this, is my, this is my favorite part, if I didn't already say that. So a couple of things that that I think are key here is that Jesus teaches as he enters into the synagogue and he begins to teach, he teaches as if he's the author of the book. So you have these scribes as he's compared to, he's not as the scribes, right? What are the scribes? The scribes devote their entire life to the book. They gather in the synagogue and they talk about the book and they they teach the book and they memorize the book and that is what the scribes are. And Jesus is being set apart as not like the scribes. Why? Because he's the author. He's the author of the book. They have these traditions where they they do all these things in the synagogue, but they've been lacking the author. And here, in this moment, the author of the book shows up and teaches and they're like, this is different this this is uh, he speaks with authority. the author speaks with authority again uh, another thing that that is key is that Jesus speaks to demons as the creator of angels look at look at what happens here so look at uh, verse twenty three again immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and what happens? The demon recognizes Jesus and he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus, he didn't even have to approach him and say, look, I'm Jesus and you're not welcome here. This demon sees him and says, I recognize you as, this, as Jesus of Nazareth, which is naming his human aspect. And then says, what have you to do with us? Holy One of God. This demon and this unclean spirit recognizes Jesus as the Holy One, eternal Son of God who is his creator. So he clearly recognizes him. And here's, here's, what, uh, here's what I love about this passage. He actually, so uh, I think there's this misconception that, you know, you have... Demonic forces, and you have um, you you have God in his in his his power, and there's going to be this epic battle between good and evil. Um, You know, and sometimes we think of the Battle of Armageddon as like the battle between good and evil, and it's like it's it's going to be like the Avengers, where you got this you know big group over here and big group over here, and they're just be like (sighs) clashing and fighting. That's not how it is at all. If you notice. What does this demon basically say when he sees Jesus? He doesn't say, oh, it's on. Let's go. He says, oh, darn, is it my time to die, basically. Basically, he looks at him and says, are you going to destroy us now? Like, who, who are you? Like, we know who you are, and we, we're now wondering if you're on the scene, does that mean that it's time for us to be destroyed? They don't step into a fight with him. They know that his presence means their defeat. And I love that. There's no contest here. And so that is definitely something that we need to take note of. So why is this good news for us? We also don't just have the book. We also have the author of the book. Jesus says when he told us to go and make disciples. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have the author. So when we read and we study and we have our devotions and we come to church and we listen to sermons, don't forget that the author of this book is alive and present here with us now. The kingdom isn't just coming The king isn't just coming one day. He's here. He's among us. That is good news. Also, it's good news because all the evil that we encounter in our lives, we also can be assured that the evil loses and Jesus wins. We can be assured that all of the evil and darkness and gloom that we experience will come to an end. It will not last forever. We are not stuck in this cycle of darkness and death and gloom. We have light that has shone upon us. We have a great light that has appeared. We will win with him if we are in Christ. No question about it. There is no debate about it. It is settled. Also, it's good news because... I want to point out one character in this story that is really easy to overlook. He, he doesn't say anything. All he does is convulse. Who is this guy? He's the demon-possessed man. And this is exactly who Jesus came for. He even said it, as we read earlier, that he came to free the captives this man in this story is captive. He's held captive by this demon. And Jesus, our compassionate king, delivers him. He delivers him from evil. And so we, we know that authority without compassion is dictatorial. But we also know that that is not our kingdom and not our king. Our king is a compassionate And kind king. He has full authority, but he lacks no compassion. So, what do we do with this? Well, we do what they did. Look again at verse 27. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits. And they obey him, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We marvel. You know, sometimes we just need to marvel and worship. With all the stuff going on, we need to get back to, and we need to beg God to keep this sense of marveling and this sense of awe. For our God, because we're amazed and we're tickled at all kinds of things in our world, aren't we? We're way too easily entertained. Using the word Marvel is not an accident here. I personally love the Marvel movies, I, I love them. I, I love watching them, I love watching the hero win, all of that. But I confess that I am way too easily satisfied with these stories, these make-believe stories. And I lack the marveling and the awe in my own heart of a Jesus who has shown up on the scene, who has brought the kingdom of God, and that the kingdom of God is breaking forth and is here now. And to just say, wow, who is this? That, that even... Even the wind and the waves obey him. Even, he, he can command the evil spirits and they obey him. So what else do we do with it? We appeal to Jesus as the king of angels and the conqueror of evil. Um, one of my favorite songs is a song by Fernando Ortega and it's called Jesus, King of Angels. Um, I've used it to sing to my little ones at night to kind of continually put in their minds that Jesus is a conqueror over evil. Um, if you're a mom or a dad, you've got little ones, I definitely recommend the song Jesus, King of Angels. Because continually, I've come back to that as they're scared and they say, Daddy, I, you know, I've got these thoughts of dark things going on in my head. Uh, I don't know what to do with them. I've uh, been having nightmares. The, the lyrics to this song, it says, Jesus, King of angels, heaven's light, shine your face upon this house tonight. Let no evil come into my dreams. Um, light of heaven, keep me in your peace. And it continues on by declaring the truths that Jesus is the king of the good angels and the bad angels, as I, uh, as I tell, tell my little ones. Now, I say little ones because I have teenagers and uh, I, don't, I don't sing to them anymore because I would love to, but they would consider it torture now. So so what else do we do with this? We appeal to Jesus as the compassionate king who delivers his people from the bondage of captivity. I think we're tempted as, as Christians today to fall either on one side or the other of the authority versus the compassion. I've seen a lot of Christians really latch on to this authority thing and they love to declare and proclaim the gospel and it's like, we don't want a weak gospel, we want a strong gospel and we're just going to proclaim it and we're just going to show up wherever and we're going to tell people that Jesus is the king. And that's one half of what we need. The other half is what Jesus also shows us in this story is that 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 compassion and authority are supposed to be partnered together. So when we show up to a scene, when we show up to um, a hurting friend, or we show even if we show up, you know, if you walk out in the middle of the street and you want to do some street evangelism, what, how, whatever it looks like, it has to be compassionate, Amen. authority. It has to be. So we don't come heartless as we proclaim the good news. We remember who the good news is for. It's for those who are in need. And so I just exhort you, look around. Look around right now. There's a lot of needs. There's a lot of hurting people. There's a lot of reason for compassionate authority. And as I, uh, as I wrap this up, uh, four, looks like I got a little over, well under 5 minutes that as we think about how the fact that the gospel is conclusive there is no room for debate or question there's no reason to present the gospel as an alternative option or Jesus as an alternative option he is the only option but we also have a gospel that is for the poor that is for the the broken It is for those who are downtrodden and in the gutter. Nobody should be off limits for us. Um, So I just encourage you to look around and look for ways that the kingdom of God continues to break through now. And I also encourage you to present a gospel that is conclusive, to leave out those, well, I believe and declare to the people who need it. The people, the, the people in your life don't need a suggestion. They don't need something to think about. They need a proclamation of good news. And they need you to say it. They need you to proclaim it for them. Not, not necessarily at them, but for them. Because we know that we are needy sinners. Jesus said, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick, for those who know that they need me. And even though, so, um, as I say all that, don't, don't like look for, you know, the people as like, you know, some, some of my, um, some of my hyper-Calvinist friends might actually look for like the right people that God might be, you know, calling. It's like, we don't do that. We preach indiscriminately to, we, know, we know that all are in need of a savior. All are in need of this, this um, compassionate, authoritative king. Um, I just lost my thought because the volume just jumped up. <laughs> I'm too easily distracted. All that to say that uh, we don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder when the kingdom of God will come, who our king is is and will be or what the kingdom of God will look like. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to come to live the perfect life for us, to die the death that we deserved, to rise again on the third day, to ascend to your right hand, to become our perfect high priest. And God, we are so grateful that you have made us your people that you've taken us who are average, who are common, and you are making something out of us. You are making us into image-bearing, Jesus-following, compassionate, authoritative people. So thank you, God, for your word. I just pray that your word would continue to go forth past and through, past these walls, past this day into our lives. And Father, we just, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.